0: So I sat down and I put my violin down on the ground and, you know, I, I, I took it out and I held it and I started playing a couple notes and I was just like, so timid. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. And then finally I said, you know what, Jasmine, you've got to make money. You're out of money. Uh, so you, you've, you, you got to play. So I just kind of closed my eyes and played Ashokin Farewell and looked down and there was $50 inside my case and there were people in front of me and I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> I can't believe there are people in front of me listening.
1: <laughs> Jasmine Reese fell in love with the sound of the violin early in life, but she didn't get a chance to start playing until she was a teenager.
0: I, you know, I was listening to all the weird stuff happening in B-York's song, but it was just that string section where I was like, wow. I love that. I love that music. And I love what this artist does with, with that that music. And I was only eight at the time. And um, unfortunately, I never came to play violin earlier at that time because I didn't know what violin was. Um, when I got a little bit older, I knew what instruments were. And uh, and I decided that I was going to buy one because I had been working as a babysitter. And and so I said, I'm going to buy myself a violin. And so I, I we were driving in the car one day my mom and I and uh, we were running errands and I was sitting in the passenger seat of course at at 14 or actually I think I was 13 and there was a music store that had violins for sale it was $110 and I had just gotten my babysitting paycheck and I was like mom stop the car and she did and I jumped out of the car and ran into the violin shop and bought the violin.
1: For Jasmine this felt like getting a late start. By comparison most professional violinists begin when they're very young. As young as three or for. Jasmine says that this idea chipped away at
0: her self-confidence throughout high school and most of college. I was 14. I probably was playing in the advanced orchestra by, by the time I was 15. And those kids had been playing for 7, 8, almost 10 years at that point. And so, you know, I had this sense of imposter syndrome. Like, do I really belong here? Even though I've been practicing six hours a day, do I really sound as good as these kids, you know? And um, so it was a very unhealthy relationship with violin for the first Few years of my time with it, and um, early twenties when I was in college, I didn't, I didn't go to music school because while I was just extremely passionate about this instrument and had this overwhelming need to play it and to communicate through my violin to other people by performing, or you know, there was still this unhealthy nature where I had to prove something or I had to show people that you could start later in life.
1: Although Jasmine was encouraged by her teacher to go to music school, she worried that it wasn't the responsible thing to do. She was plagued both by self-doubt and by the idea of needing a more grounded career. So she studied journalism and pre-med at the same time. Jasmine says that she thinks it's possible that a growing sense of imposter syndrome and setting an ambitiously high bar for herself sparked a
0: downward spiral that changed how she saw the trajectory of her formal education. I don't know if that caused, I, I doubt that that caused major depression, but it definitely was kind of like the spark of of major depression. Over 200 pounds, I had gained over 100 pounds um, during my battle with depression while in school, just from eating, you know, just all that comfort eating and being isolated and not wanting to go out of my Dorm and out of my apartment, Um, and then I moved in with my mom because I thought maybe that would help me, and it didn't. I just became even more isolated in my my corner of the house, you know, and um, I became messy, and and it was just terrible. I couldn't, you know, so opposite from who I was prior to whatever had settled upon me because I didn't know what was going on, and um, all of a sudden I was just this messy person who was. I'm pretty much in a hoarding type environment in my room and and there was stuff you could walk, you couldn't walk in my room without stepping on something. It was terrible. And, um, and then, you know, I was isolated and I, it was like, you know, I I went from being this person who was eager to go to class. I would look up the catalog, would come out six months before and I was already selecting all my classes for the next semester. I just, that was, I love that. But I, when I came down with this depression, I, I didn't even do that anymore and the the struggle to get out of bed and to go to school was immense. It was like having a boulder on you and having to push on this boulder just to get out of bed and to go anywhere and to do anything. And then when I did finally win and go to school, you know, I'm in class and everything that the teacher, you know, the professor is saying is, is like a foreign language. You know, I used to be the, I, or I should say I am, I'm still now, but before that I was the fastest learner, you know? And after that, I couldn't even take in basic concepts. I kept failing classes and I went from being a, you know, almost a 4.0 GPA student to a 1.9 GPA student because I kept failing because I couldn't study anymore. And I couldn't, taken anything that they were saying. So, you know, it was quite, it was quite a difference from who I was.
1: I'm your host, Jessica Zephyrs, with Adventure Cycling Association. Today, we look at the tough moments the ones that are completely out of our control, the ones we bring upon ourselves, and the ones that lead to bad ideas but great stories. When the going gets tough, they say, the tough get going. It's a phrase that conjures rugged individualism. It makes me think of cowboys, dust, and bootstraps, but honestly, I just don't buy into it. Perhaps, rather, it's in these moments where we grow toughness our fortitude and our resiliency. What helped Jasmine find a bit of her old self in the midst of her depression was her dog and her mom's Walmart bicycle. Being a high-energy dog, Fiji needed a lot of exercise, so Jasmine would haul out the bike and take Fiji on long, wandering runs around town. She says that during these rides, she would find a piece of herself she thought was gone, a part of that driven girl she knew and liked, and she wanted that feeling to continue. So in 2013, With no prior touring knowledge and very few resources, she packed up her bike and Fiji and just started
0: pedaling. So in 2013, I was on the side of the road and my mom was helping to pack up my bike. This was my first time ever putting my panniers and my trailer and everything on my bike. Can you believe it? I'm on the side of the road, getting ready to leave cross country. And this is my first time ever packing all that stuff up and testing it and seeing what it weighs and all that jazz. I'm just on the side of the road doing this all last minute. And so my mom's trying to help me get the pioneers on my bike and I'm struggling with putting the bags on. And, and then I have to put, you know, Fiji's like looking at me like, what's going on? What are you doing? You know? And so I'm putting this trailer on the bike and Getting, re- getting geared up and putting my poncho on because it looks like it's about to rain. And then it starts sprinkling, you know, and the rain starts coming down and I see my violin and it's just this flimsy case, you know, cheap case. And my violin's a little bit more expensive. You know, I had to do like a, a layaway thing for it. And I'm like, oh, I don't really know how to protect it. I didn't think that far. <laughs> and so I said, mom, I think I'm going to leave my violin in the car because, uh, I don't think I'm going to be able to take that with me. So, um, so I didn't meet my touring violin until uh, I got to Indianapolis. I started in New York, New Jersey, the outskirts. And, um, and I, when I got to Indianapolis, it maybe had been a month into my tour and I was missing my violin, something crazy. And, um, my, uh, a friend of mine, uh, who I had worked with while I was studying at the university in um, in Columbia, Missouri. She said, "Jasmine, I can buy you a cheap violin. That way, if something happens to it, you know you don't have to worry. It, it's a cheap violin; it doesn't matter." And um, and so she went to um, this wonderful shop called Fiddler Shop, FiddlerShop dot com. Just. I'll throw out a plug for them because they've helped me a lot throughout my tour when it comes to music and things of that nature. So, um so they had, you know, these student violins, really good quality and even though they were less expensive, they they still sound pretty good. So, um she ended up giving getting me one of those and um they sent it to Indianapolis and I was so happy to finally have Um, you know, my violin. And so I had a plan at this point, I'm going to just put my violin in a trash bag or something like that, heavy duty trash bag, and that'll protect it from the rain and things of that nature. And I kind of, you know, I had a, a plan about what I wanted the violin for while I was on my tour. I really wanted to use it as a way to make money, to kind of get out of this fear of performing, this fear of you know, at that time, I was starting to learn more about myself and how I needed to stop the self-doubt, stop this perfectionism and all that jazz. And I just needed to perform more um, and and not have so much fear around it. So I wanted to use it as a way to just play for anyone I met. And, um, and so I started challenging myself, like I would stop at random places and there would be, you know, I kind of cheated because there would be no one around and I'd take out my violin. But even that act was good because... I was afraid period to take out my violin and play at any chance that someone might walk by and see, see me playing or hear it. So the very act, even though there were no people around, the very act of taking out my violin in this public space or in it on the outside was still um, pretty brave of me for, for my, you know, my level of fear. And so I would take it out and just start playing. And, and then um, finally, when I got to Kansas, is where I had an opportunity to actually play in front of people. And I was like, so scared. Oh my gosh. And I was staying with this wonderful man and his wife, um, ben. I'm pretty sure he'll be okay with me mentioning his name, but his name was Ben. And um, he's he's still around. He's he's just not in Kansas anymore. But he was one of my warm showers hosts and he played the concertina. I can't remember what instrument that was. Maybe it was a little hammer dul- dulcimer. I can't remember. But um, he, we decided we were going to play a few tunes together. So um, he set up a, a, a spot for us at the local farmer's market and I played a Shokin Farewell and I was shaking in my boots, but I did good. And there was a video of it. I, I'm pretty sure it's somewhere still on YouTube. But um, yeah, so that that's kind of that's kind of my relationship with it. But still in 2013, my my focus going on that cycling tour was not violin. It wasn't about recapturing my love of violin. It was about finding me. Um, you know, cause I, I thought I had lost so much of myself. I thought I had, you know, um, t- because of major depression, I didn't know I had major depression at that time, but, and I didn't understand what was happening to me. So I, that first bicycle tour was really about what happened to Jasmine and what can I do to make her this person she used to be this energetic person she used to be again. So, so I didn't really, you know, Violin didn't come into the picture. It wasn't the the main point of things. And so I I didn't really take it out much on that tour. It was with me and it was like this crutch. It was something I needed because it was this old part of Jasmine. You know, it was like that was the Jasmine who needed violin to survive. And so it had to be in the background, even if I wasn't touching it or playing it. Um, so, so yeah, that, that's kind of the touring violin that I met in 2013. And then it kind of shifted in 2016. In 2016, violin became a central point again, but it wasn't, it wasn't the central point in the sense of I need it to live. It was the central point in, I love this instrument. There's no reason why I shouldn't be learning it and trying to accomplish playing some other music on it and, and possibly even making money from it. You know, um, after that first bicycle tour, I kind of approached life a lot differently that one, you shouldn't have regrets. Um, two, you should do the things that make you happy. And three, your life should be filled. You should be living your day to day with as many happy moments as possible. And you can't do that if you're doing something you don't love, or if you're, you know, if you're unhappy or if you have a lot of regrets. So, um, So that's in 2016, I started that tour um, with this idea that I love violin and so therefore I should be doing it and I should be learning it and I should be trying to play as much as possible and overcoming a lot of my fears.
1: After her 2013 bike tour, Jasmine tried to settle down. She got a 9-to-5 job and her own apartment. She was making a decent wage and taking care of herself in Fiji. But something didn't feel right. She was regretting not finishing school and felt down on herself for a lack of formal music education. And thinking back on this time,
0: she says she just wasn't really doing the
1: things she wanted to do.
0: I didn't get to study what I really wanted to study. I didn't get to do what I really wanted to do. And, um... And I want to. And I started asking myself, well, why does it have to be in an actual institution? Why can't I get that same education out there on the road? And you love cycling so much and you love music so much. Why can't you do those both at the same time? I mean, what? I mean, that's the best university there is. (laughs) The road. The road has taught me so much about about myself and about my body and about my mental, you know, my mental level of what my brain is capable of, my resourcefulness, resourcefulness, my networking skills. It's taught me entrepreneurship. So why can't I add music to this, you know, to this school, this informal school of the road, you know? And so that's when uh, I said, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go on the road. I'm going to meet professional musicians force myself to play with them, force myself into situations that would normally scare the crap out of me, um, such as performing or street performing on, you know, busking or being in actual venues, house concerts. And I'm gonna let the road serve as as my school, as my education. So I um, found some people, cause my plan was to go from Indianapolis to Austin. And then when I got to Austin, I was gonna hitchhike up to Seattle. Um, I actually wasn't going to hitchhike. There was a woman who I had pre-arranged with who was going to take me up there, but she ended up canceling. So when I got to Austin, the plan was to hitchhike up to Seattle, but I couldn't find anyone going directly to Seattle. So, um, I ended up finding a Craigslist, rideshare, um, with a woman, um, to California. And then from California, I found another Craigslist rideshare up to Seattle. And then, um, at that point I hadn't really played violin oh actually I, I did for a couple of people I tried to in between Indianapolis and Austin I think it was that first night out on the road I stayed with a, a warm showers host and I played Chrysler's Liebeschleid for them and uh I think I'm pronouncing that right if anybody's listening to this I'm so sorry that I pronounced that wrong <laughs> but I played that for <laughs> I played that for um for them and And, um, and it was, I was scared, but I was just so happy that I was doing it. I was like, oh my gosh, this is, this is this first test of Jasmine's Rhodes, Rhodes School of Music. Yes. I'm having my first trial recital for someone to kind of skip over all of that for now. Um, when I got into Canada, that's when I started. Going, meeting fiddlers, and um, going to competitions. To hitchhike! I hitchhiked to a competition and and won fifty dollars, even though I had just heard about it like a few days prior. I can't believe it because I had to, <laughs> I had to learn three fiddle tunes. And okay, so I had to learn three fiddle tunes, and and um, so I did that in a day. And I thought, okay, I completely bombed. I'm not going to win anything. And so I went back to my host house and. Um, you know, I was just like, okay, well, I'm. I guess I'm leaving tomorrow because I don't have to stay here for the three days for the competition anymore. And so they call me and they're like, "Where are you? You, you're, you've made it to the semifinals." I'm like, "What? What? What?" <laughs> I couldn't believe I made it to the semifinals. And so they said, "They, uh, the thing that I was most disappointed about in that, in that was that I had to learn three more tunes." <laughs> so I said, "Oh my gosh, I have to learn." I have to learn another three tunes now because I made it to the semifinals. So, so I worked hard. I made, uh, I, I, you know, went to the semifinals and then I made it past that. And then I, I won, I think it was third, uh, third place in the open amateurs or something like that. I can't remember what category, but I just, I can't believe it. So they sent me like my $50 check. It was amazing. I was like, I was like, I'm truly making money as a musician now. Oh my gosh, it's official. (laughs) It was amazing. Um, But I didn't get to do classical music the way I really wanted to. I did mostly fiddling because I was completely unprepared uh, for how big fiddling culture is in Canada. Just there's all of these different forms of fiddling. And, you know, and I I wasn't, I didn't know that at the time. I was like, I thought for sure there was going to be some classical music, but I could not find classical events. For the life of me, it was all fiddle, fiddle, fiddle. And and so I just learned Canadian old time tunes and traditional tunes. And uh, what was the other? Quebe- Quebecois or Quebecois. I can't remember how, how it's, it's Quebec, you know, style fiddling. And then uh, Métis fiddling, which is, you know, from the First Nations and, you know, a mixture of First Nations and I believe French. Uh, yeah. So there's all these different styles. And then, of course, when you get to Nova Scotia, you have a lot of the uh, Celtic or, or Scottish fiddling traditions there. And, um, yeah, so it was just amazing to, to learn all these different styles. And so by the time I finished Canada, I was completely full on, on all of these different forms of fiddling. And I said, okay, now I, but I know what I love. And while fiddling has made me a good amount of money across Canada, because that was the popular style of, of music going across music, uh, going across Canada. Um, I, I also knew that, I wouldn't be happy if I just played fiddle, fiddle tunes. I, I knew I needed to get back to the thing that I fell in love with violin for, which was classical music. Um, and so that's when I started, I found a teacher online and I started studying with him from the road. Sometimes when I had a place to stay, you know, he would give me lessons via Skype and then, um, and then I would try to play different classical tunes for people. But I think in 2016, that was finally when I had a switch that I just loved life itself. The very act of breathing, the very back act of, of seeing the blue sky, of all the animals around me. And, and then, of course, all the things within my life. Um, I, I don't even, I can't put into words the shift. Um, but it's just, I don't know. I just love living. I love my body. I love what my body's capable of. I love hearing my heartbeat. I love the way my brain works. Um, I like looking at my hands and seeing them there. You know, it's just I don't, I don't know, I don't know how to explain it. And it's such a shift from depression, which makes you feel like you've lost everything. That's how depression makes you feel. It makes you feel like all the things that you need to survive are no longer there, and therefore your will to live is stripped from you. And um, but when you love life for just what it is, then there is you don't need the will anymore. So therefore, I, I don't think I've ever had a suicidal thought or anything of that nature, because I just love life for life and I don't need all of these things around me to feel complete. Um, so I, yeah, I, I don't know if I'm making sense. I feel like I'm rambling, but um, yeah, I don't know. It's just, <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's just beautiful to be at a stage in life where I, I don't feel the need to attach to specific things to feel Like my life is meaningful. I just, I'm just happy to be here.
1: Jasmine Reese for her story and for providing some of the violin music you heard. When we're not in the middle of a pandemic, Jasmine is a full-time bicycle nomad, working remotely from wherever she is at the moment. You can follow her adventures on her website fijapod.com. Alyssa Bell has always enjoyed travel and endurance sports like bikepacking and ultra running. But when she found out that people were combining the two in this strange little activity called bicycle travel, she jumped on board and fell in love. She's now traveled by bike in Patagonia, East Africa, and Southeast Asia, all of which deserve their own stories. But the one we're here to tell today is a lot closer to home.
2: I've always been inspired by just sort of these like long lines on maps, um, whether with ultra running or backpacking, anything that goes from A to B through beautiful or interesting places um, just kind of captures my imagination. So so that was there, um, but I, I didn't think I would act on it. And then while touring in some of these other places like Southeast Asia, Patagonia, um, I started thinking, wow, I'm learning so much about these other cultures and getting to experience them in this this way that I've never experienced before while traveling in other ways. And I wonder what my country would look like in the United States through the eyes of a traveler on a bicycle. Um, I started to get curious about that, but at the same time, uh, I, I'm... Uh, my life is a little hard to explain at the moment. Like I'm working part time when I'm home and I'm married and I have a lot of things going on. And so the idea of taking four months to ride across my own country when there are so many other fascinating countries out there seemed like not something I was going to do. Um, And then in the middle of all of this, the Trans Am race folks came out with a sister race called Bike Nonstop US that they were putting out there for the first year kind of experimentally uh, and saying that it was likely to be a safer route. So it took advantage of a lot of back roads and gravel and bike paths and uh, I just started to think like gosh maybe why not Um, like what a what a perfect combination I could see my own country on a bicycle, but also with this push to go faster, it would be like a pretty efficient use of time, if that makes sense. It would be intense in different ways than I was used to, but like still this kind of intensity that I like. So it was really just a combination of a lot of things. And then once it got in my
1: mind, kind of worked its way under my skin, um, (laughs) it just grew and grew until I couldn't get rid of it. So Alyssa signed up. As for training, she counted on the miles from her last bike tour to carry her most of the way. In the intervening few months, she went for some day rides, she ran, and she stopped at the gym for overall strength exercises. But in terms of hours in the saddle in the month or two leading up to the race, there just weren't a ton. What she did do was a lot of route research and gear planning.
2: I raced on my long-haul trucker. surely my touring bike. (laughs) Same one that's been with me for all my other trips. Yeah, it's interesting because I had only ever ridden with a touring setup. So, like having never raced an unloaded <laughs> or never yeah never raced an unloaded bicycle, uh, it, I didn't really have any other approach that I was aware of besides just stripping down a touring setup as much as possible. So, I decided that instead of panniers, I would try to just Pack lighter and take everything I would have put in my panniers and put it in a dry sack and strap it to the top of my rear rack because then I would have um, like a more aerodynamic setup and a little bit lighter packing list. But at the same time, I wasn't ready to ditch that rack and go to more of the the bike packing setup that people use. So people who started racing bicycles in like a single day format or an overnight sort of start from an unloaded bike and then add add these smaller bags and just put the bare necessities in so I kind of came from the opposite direction um also I think I was motivated by not wanting to um, spend a bunch of money and wanting to stick with what I knew so I'd done a lot of touring with this rack before and knew it worked for me and figured I would just make it work from a gear perspective I, I would have gone with a bivy sack. I now understand why most people who do these races take bivy sacks instead of tents um, just to save a little bit of weight and probably would have shelled out for the more more streamlined bike packing bags uh, as opposed to the rear rack because there were some times where the gravel was kind of rough and the, the, the dry sack was slipping off to the side and <laughs> that was kind of the last thing I needed at those times. So yeah, it worked. But if I had known how how uh, how incredibly important all of this was going to be during like 16 hours of riding day in and day out, I think I would have decided it was worth a little bit of extra money to have a more ideal setup. I went into the race a little bit, a little bit unsure of what to expect. I'd heard that the cycling culture can be a little intense sometimes. Um a little maybe judgmental about equipment or that kind of thing. I, I didn't really know, but coming from a bicycle travel background, I was a little worried about how the the actual cycling community would accept me. Um, and also knowing that I would be the one, one of very few women. So there were only, I think, three women in the field, uh, with most people being men also older uh, i think i was one of the youngest people so a lot of men in like their late 30s 40s 50s even 60s um and then me <laughs> a woman in her uh, early 30s so i was really pleasantly surprised when i showed up at the start line and instead of being laughed at <laughs> when people saw my bike uh people were really curious they asked questions they were like wow is that a is that a long-haul checker like that's cool or you wow, you must be really hardcore (laughs) race on that thing. Um, But like in a very supportive way. Uh, And then I, I got to know some of them a little bit better during the race. Not very many because most of them were rather far ahead of me. But there was a group kind of in the mid back of the pack who were, were very experienced with this type of racing and could ride much faster than me when they chose like their, in order to, stay and talk with me. They had to slow way down. Um, and they would start a little bit later in the mornings, and they would like stop for a little bit longer for meals. And I would roll in at the end of the day, and they would all be sort of finishing up their dinner together at the pizza place or whatever. And um, I would have ridden alone all day and just would go to the gas station get some food as quickly as possible. So we leapfrogged for a little bit like that. And they were just the most supportive delightfully crazy people i have ever met like they they make me look normal and um and and the things that i do look mild right (laughs) by comparison um just really really passionate enthusiastic supportive people um crazy but in the best possible way as you point out as adults like it's true our culture doesn't really reward like being last at things or doing things that you're not good at or doing things you're not well prepared for. Um, Like we're kind of supposed to be good at the things we do or people wonder why we're, why we're wasting our time, right? (laughs) Especially when it's something that's so much effort. So I think uh, in some sense, uh, definitely I had to come to terms with being uh, kind of an outsider to the scene and feeling like, like maybe it was something I wouldn't be able to finish and that that would be embarrassing given how much time and energy I was putting into it. Um, but on the other hand, I definitely gave myself credit for just showing up and trying. Um, I That's one thing I really appreciate about the endurance sports culture is there is often this appreciation for the back of the pack where the, you know, those of us at the back look at the people in the front and we say, wow, you're so impressive. You're so fast and so well-trained and your gear is so top-notch and uh, like, I can't believe that you finished that quickly. Um, the people in the front, I think often look at the people in the back and say, wow, I can't believe you rode that heavy bike all the way across the country. Or I can't believe that you were out there for twice as long as I was dealing with all of that um, and there's like this mutual appreciation that goes both ways um and so like whatever your your personal journey is it seems like that's usually respected by by the people who do these kinds of events in races like this there is sort of a, an unwritten or sometimes even written but in this particular race unwritten expectation that to really be racing you need to finish in like under a month or under 30 days um, otherwise like You know, maybe you could have just toured it on your own. You didn't need to sign up for the race. Right. So I certainly hoped that I would finish in under 30 days. And I thought it might be possible. But I also knew that that meant riding about 120 miles a day on average. Um, And my longest day at that point had been... 99 miles uh this one time in Cambodia just because I couldn't find a place to sleep and it almost wrecked me (laughs) so uh the thought of doing like more than my average um every single day for a month more than more than my prior max every single day for a month was was intimidating um so I was hoping for a 30-day finish I figured my chances were I don't know maybe like 60 percent of Success. Um, I I know how to how to just grind it out when things get tough, and so I thought if my body held together, uh, that would be my strategy, and I would just just go for it. Um, the The very first day of the race, <laughs> when when pretty much everyone in the pack took off, and I was at the back by like mile five, uh, I definitely started to worry that my my hopeful expectations of 30 days were not realistic. Uh, and at that point I was really hoping that maybe, just maybe, I could actually finish. The beginning of the race is pretty remote. So you go through central and eastern Oregon and there's not a lot of cell reception and internet. And so you kind of lose track of of everyone. Um, there's a tracking website. So everyone's being tracked. But the only way you can see where they are is to check the website. Um, And most of the time, you're alone, because people just spread out. So I went through a couple days where I assumed I was just way far at the back, hopelessly behind. And then a a few days in, popped out at this little town where they had a tracking screen up. And I was able to see that somehow I had actually passed a few people and was like catching up to the the back of the pack. Um, And at that point, I was like, well, gosh, maybe if I could keep this up, you know, maybe I could finish in like 25 days or 23 days and be this cool success story. Uh, the, you know, the underdog who came in with this horribly uh, inappropriate bike and setup up and still, still crushed it. And I thought that would be pretty fun. Um, so <laughs> kind of like, that was a good boost. Uh, definitely powered me through for a few more days. And um, I spent a good couple weeks leapfrogging with some people in the sort of mid back of the pack a little bit which was really fun like I'd start early and then they'd pass me and we'd talk for a little bit and then I'd catch up to them at night um like sleep in the same town and I was trying to stick with them I think long story short basically just overextended a little bit and um between the sleep deprivation and the the, the lack of experience writing such long hours, uh, somewhere in like Missouri, uh, I couldn't stick with them anymore and started questioning whether, whether 30 days was even gonna work. And uh, sort of around the same time the Midwest flooded um epically like uh, historic floods uh and a lot of the route was underwater and we were detouring and um at that point i wasn't really sure i could finish at all because uh things were getting really complicated uh riding in missouri they have these steep roller coaster hills short and steep just up down up down Um, and you can't see over the top of them. And so if you're riding on the road and cars are coming behind you, they don't want to go over the line to pass because they actually can't see what's coming over the top of the hill. Uh, And so I was just riding like crazy trying to get to the top of this hill. And there were a couple cars behind me. And um, I rode to the top just because it takes so much more effort to stop um, (laughs) or to to start again after you've stopped rather. And at the very top, there were cars coming the other way. So I pulled off to let these people pass me and this man in a little red sports car cursed at me. He said, get on the effing sidewalk, which was kind of funny because there were no sidewalks anywhere for miles. It was the middle of the (laughs) middle of nowhere. Um, But that was just like the straw that broke the camel's back you know I was so tired and I ended up just sort of pulling over and crying for a while and felt really frustrated with myself that I had let this person impact my day like that and I think that's when it kind of starts to spiral negatively for me um yeah it's I can control things pretty well when I'm just on my own somewhere but uh when other people get involved it gets harder the time that i Felt I was most likely to fail was this two-day stretch in Missouri, where uh, these so a lot of things happened. the The course had flooded, and so we were rerouted onto what was not only a busier highway, but also. Uh, really hilly. Uh, So instead of this nice flat rail trail by the river, we were riding roller coaster hills on highways across the whole state. (laughs) And um, it was also like two to three weeks in and just that fatigue is definitely building. And uh, I had a day where I think I only managed like 80 something miles. It was the day that that, uh, the driver cursed at me while I was riding up the hill. And I just sort of had to let out a bunch of emotion that had been building, I think, for a few days. And so I took an easier evening. I stopped a little bit sooner, having ridden only 80 miles. And I thought, well, shoot, if, if, <laughs> if I ride only 80 miles from here on out, like it's all over. Um, but it's okay because I'm stopping early tonight and then tomorrow I'll get up early and I'll make up for it tomorrow um, once I'm well-rested. But I woke up the next morning at like 4 a.m. or whatever after a, a full six hours of sleep, uh, which was like a recovery night, and uh, tried to get out of bed and just, uh, I don't really know how to describe it. It was like the whole world was kind of just pulsating. Like it was really not a very healthy feeling. Um, it wasn't exactly my head or my heart or it just something really felt off. Um, and I could barely stay awake to pack my stuff. And uh, just realized you know my health is more important than finishing this darn race i went back to bed for like two or three hours uh woke up dragged myself out had another 80 mile day so two in a row um at that point i was pretty concerned that i wasn't wasn't gonna make it in time was gonna have to drop but know exactly what happened i just kind of kept going you know just each day well let me just see how many miles i can get today and today and today and eventually made up made up the difference so (laughs) in the end uh over the last few days i was back on track for roughly a 30-day finish and actually kind of willingly uh willingly gave it up i ended up finishing in like 30 days and six hours or something like that which was just over that goal but by then i was so happy to just be close to the end i had made time deliberately for some some interactions with people that i wanted to have like spending you know 30 minutes talking to a dad and his kid around a campfire at night instead of just going to bed when i should have slept and um i knew that i wanted to finish in dc during the daylight uh just for my own enjoyment of the moment. So <laughs> in the end, I met the expectations uh, almost, but decided that I didn't care. <laughs> I was really happy with it anyway. <laughs> it was the experience that I wanted it to be. There were times I feel like, oh, if I had just pushed a little harder that day, I could have cut off you know, six hours of finishing time or whatever. But when I look back on the whole thing, it's I'm pretty sure it's the hardest thing I've ever done. <laughs> um, just in terms of the, the mental effort required to just keep going day after day. Um, yeah, I'm pleased, pleased with the time I finished it in. I'm pleased that I did it. I'm pleased with the experiences that I had along the way and the way that I got to see my country. In some ways, it's not so different from abroad. I mean, it turns out uh, the United States is a big really diverse place (laughs) um i happen to live in the bay area in california which is my little bubble um and i've always known that it's very different from a lot of other places in the country but it's a totally different thing to actually physically be in those places uh on a bicycle completely uh vulnerable and you know in the middle of everything and to feel that so the understanding of what it's like to spend your time in these tiny towns that we have dotted all across the country um spending so much time in gas stations and convenience stores and seeing all the people who come and go there and what they're buying and you know this is their maybe their daily routine um, and i'm just passing through and getting to see it from that perspective Um, obviously you know politically speaking things are a little polarized right now and um, where i live i experience a lot of one side of that but I met people across the country who have very different political views from me, but who completely welcomed me and were kind to me and didn't care (laughs) at all um, about where I'm from or what my views are. They just wanted to connect as humans, uh, which was really nice. I kind of feel like this should be (laughs) something like this should be required uh, for everyone (laughs) at some point, Uh, not to ride a bike across the country, but just to, to interact face to face with with people who have different experiences.
1: Big thanks to Alyssa for sharing her ups and downs during Bike Nonstop US. Alyssa runs a website called Exploring Wild, where she writes articles that help women solo adventurers travel with confidence. When Laura Killingbeck wants to change her life, she commits. It's the kind of commitment that tosses normalcy and familiarity out the window, hops on a plane, buys a bike from a shaman, and takes off with nothing but a Hello Kitty backpack. When Laura and her partner Scott broke up, they were living together in Costa Rica. Laura had a decision to make, and she made it swiftly and adventurously, even if the outcome wasn't exactly what she'd hoped for. Just a warning, this story mentions the
3: topic of sexual assault. Here's Laura. Laura. I started solo touring by bicycle when I was 21. It was a very sudden experience. So I was working in a nightclub, and it was one of those jobs where, you know, you're bleach blonde and you have all this makeup on, and and you're tottering around on these, you know, spindly high heels. And it was very fascinating and very fun for a while until it wasn't. And it just, it kind of just wasn't the place that I needed to be anymore. And so I went home one night from this job and I was just like, ah, oh, I'd, I'd like to go anywhere else. <laughs> and so I opened up my computer and it's kind of like one of those things that you do sort of as a fantasy is just, you know, kind of browsing through flights to anywhere else in the world. And um, I ended up just actually buying a cheap ticket to Iceland very randomly um, for the following weekend. And that was it. I was like, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm going to Iceland now instead of going back to work. And <laughs> so I had to figure out what to do there. Of course, um, the, the return ticket was a month after that. And so I happened to have a bike and it was like, oh, maybe I can just bike around Iceland. And that was it. And so I, I had a week to plan the trip and, and you know, cobble up some gear. And then I, I just went to Iceland and I biked around Iceland with really very little planning. Um, so it is shocking that it worked, but it did. It, it did. <laughs> I had been living in Costa Rica with my partner, Scott, at the time, and we broke up. And so I had to figure out what to do next. Um, I was in Central America by myself, and so I just started heading south, which is kind of my go-to. Like, if you don't know what to do, just, you know, pick a cardinal direction and, you know, move in that <laughs> move in that direction for a while until something happens. Um, so I headed south and took some buses and hitched some rides and and eventually ended up in Bogota, Colombia. And so I stayed with a couch surfer, a Colombian couch surfer named Juan in Bogota. And Juan ended up being this amazing person. He was a cyclist and he had this bike that he, I have these fond memories of him in the living room just welding this bike together with a jewelry welder. I have no idea what he was welding to this day. I don't know if it was the frame or something else, but I just, it was just like kind of shocking that this was going on right there. And he had a little piece of styrofoam on the back of the bike. And so I would sit on the styrofoam and he would just ride me around Bogota, around the city. And so I I started to get to know the city by the, the back seat of a bicycle and just kind of fell in love with it and was like, all right, well, I'll live here then. (laughs) So I spent some time, uh, I found a little uh, place to live. It It was ended up being a garden shed. So out in the middle of, of the city, people have little kind of enclosed yards and someone had built a, a small garden shed and they were renting it out as a place to live. And so I moved in there and it was perfect for me. I love small spaces. A little ways into that, I, my ex-partner contacted me and told me that he had gotten cancer. And so it was a big, you know, a terrible thing. We were separated, but at the same time, you know, this is someone that I loved very much. And so I ended up flying back to the States and visiting with him as, as he was going through that and then flying back. And and during this time, we rekindled our relationship. And so I ended up kind of planning for, okay, well, I've kind of moved to Columbia. Maybe, maybe he can come too. <laughs> we'll just like figure this out. And, um, so I found a volunteer position at a, as a park ranger in the Andes. And so I went through this program and I, I got, um, Scott a, um, a position as well. And so I was going through this and, you know, I was like, great, well, I've moved to Bogota and I'm going to, you know, be a park ranger and, you know, Scott will come. And I realized, um, halfway through this process that I had a visa and that visa was going to expire very quickly and so you know in all of the excitement of this adventure I hadn't uh, I hadn't checked into that that one tiny detail <laughs> um, unfortunately. I started trying to renew this visa in any way that I could and I ended up you know I joined a university and I did all of these things and every day I would walk to the visa office and I would wait in line and I would and I would try to renew this visa and it was not going to happen it was just not going to happen I pulled out all the stops all the creative moves it was not going to happen and so after several weeks of trying this you know with everything I had really I walked out of the visa office one day and I was very dejected and I looked up and I saw someone riding a bicycle and I had this kind of instantaneous thought. It was like, ah, it would be easier to bike to Venezuela than it would be to even return to this visa office. And so I had this kind of spark of a thought. And then by the time I got home, it had become a plan. (laughs) I decided that I would bike to Venezuela, figure out how to renew my visa at the border, and then come back and have this park ranger position with, with my partner. And so of course I didn't have a bike or anything. So I you know started looking around and a friend of mine had a used bicycle and so I went to his house and he happened to be the son of a shaman and so he was selling this used bicycle but it came with all of these um he had me eat these like funny berries and all of these different things. So it was a whole experience of getting this bike and I had to pay him $50 and then give him a kiss on the cheek. And that was the, that was the transaction is, is all of those different things. And so I got this bike for 50 bucks and I, I went to a flea market and I looked around for something that I could use for a pannier. And I found this little, um, hello kitty children's rolling backpack for like six bucks and it was nice because it has that flat back because it's a it's a rolling backpack and so it has like a flat side that was my bike setup. So I was like, great! I'll uh, I'll just you know fill this up with some gear and I'll you know bike to Venezuela, which is you know you know a thousand or fifteen hundred miles away depending on on how you go. And kind of at the last minute, I was like, oh, maybe I shouldn't bike by myself to Venezuela. Maybe I should try to to find someone who will come with me. And so I posted a message on couch surfing. So Couchsurfing has an online forum um, where you can post messages. And I said, hey, I'm Laura, biking to Venezuela. Does anyone want to come along? Leaving in a few weeks. Um, if so, meet me at this acoustic rock concert um, at the Half Sandwich, which is what this uh, venue was called, was the Half Sandwich. Uh, meet me at this concert on saturday so obviously this plane is not going to work um there's no way it can work um at all as you have it uh saturday arrived i went to the half sandwich for this concert i was standing in a crowd of people and this guy walks up to me and he's like are you laura you know and i was like yes and he said i want to come bike with you I remember this moment so clearly because he was wearing these like flowy pants and they were full of all these different colors and and so he just like came right up to me in the crowd and so I was like great I was like hey you know so do you have any experience biking and he said no and I was like oh well do you have a bike and he said no and I was like all right (laughs) And, um, and the whole time this, this conversation, of course, is in Spanish, um, so I'm learning Spanish as a second language. Matias, this person, was, uh, was French, and so he was also learning Spanish as a second language, and so we were communicating in a second language as well as we did for the rest of the time that we knew each other um, to add an, an interesting layer to, those, to that communication. We went and we got him a, a very cheap used bicycle. And you know, similar thing. We threw on a duffel bag, and and he was good to go. And so uh, we left. <laughs> we just kind of biked away um, out of the city of Bogota. So I had done the my first two bike trips alone. Latin America is a little bit different for women. I felt confident that I would probably be okay going alone, but I had just gotten sick of the harassment. Um, so there is a lot of harassment that can happen to women, especially when you're alone. And, and so that was really the reason for for seeking out a partner. Unfortunately. Um, but it definitely did have to do with gender. You know, one of the things that I love about biking alone in nature is that it is a moment in which I I don't have to really be a gender so much. I find a lot of freedom in that. It's a big relief. As a female, I do have a constant awareness now of gender um, in terms of interacting with other people and what that means and what the potential risks might be. And that is something that I manage. I, I have learned to, to manage my own feelings about that and have learned some skills in, in managing how people respond to me as well. And, and so I, I do definitely believe that that all people are um, hardwired so to speak for for empathy and for connection. I think that's a primal really the most primal part of who we are is is connecting people we want to connect with each other and so in any of those situations it's it's always a you're, you're practicing the skills of of trying to kind of redirect or reframe any sort of aggression and and really bring out that empathy that it that i think is really natural to to people in general as i've gotten older and i've had more experiences my my attitude has changed somewhat in that i i know that there are certain parts of the world or certain areas that that it will be much more difficult for me because of of sexual harassment and so that is a consideration that i take now um, in terms of planning a bike route is, is i do plan for uh how much emotional space i have to to deflect or dissuade or redirect sexual harassment. You know, I started asking my female friends, you know, a lot more, like, like, what is this like for you? Like, what are these fears? And and, you know, a surprising number of women responded that they really are afraid to to bike or hike or, or do a lot of things alone in the wilderness because of that fear of, of male aggression or sexual harassment or um, sexual assault. And so in trying to kind of put a name to this sort of general fear, there, there's this general fear that, that a lot of women have about what will happen if they're alone in terms of sexual assault or sexual harassment. And I, I kind of think of that now as the, the phantom man. It, it's like there's this um, this kind of omnipresent threat for women or for people in female bodies um, that something's going to happen to you it, it, you know and i think of it as like women are really restricted right now from independent motion in so many ways in so many areas of the world but even in the united states women are very restricted from independent motion and it's just it comes up as this natural thing this like natural fear that you don't even think about you just know that you don't do certain things because you're female and one of those things is is travel alone to a lot of places and you know if you consider that entire section of the human population is restricted from independent motion because of these fears I mean it's just it. you know like when you frame it that way it, it just seems like a very important issue to, to tackle. you know. And it, and it's a lifelong lesson for me, I think, to, to change my own behavior, to, to not capitulate to a lot of those expectations. It's, it's a work in progress for sure. And, and I, I feel, you know, that I am a, to radical feminist. I, I write about gender. I think a lot about gender. I read a lot about gender. And it's still a daily process for me to continue to learn about it. It's a it's a big thing. It's a it's one of the biggest parts of my life, really. <laughs> you know, I think one of the ironies of there being such a massive restriction on independent motion for women um, around the world because of that fear of sexual assault it is you're kind of faced with a dilemma of, of well, do I go anywhere anyway and kind of take these risks or or do I stay home? I do feel strongly that staying home doesn't solve the issue. Like if the problem is a restriction on independent motion for women, then 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 continuing that doesn't solve it. Like we have to do something. I think one thing that has happened in the past is that women have been blamed for sexual assault. Like you know, if you go alone to a certain place and, and you are sexually assaulted, then it's like, oh well, why did you do that? <laughs> like you know, it's it's a very strange thing. And so I, I do think that talking about these issues in a direct way and um, telling the stories and giving women space to tell those stories is really important to change the situation and to solve the problem. Expecting women to stay home doesn't solve the problem. We just biked out of the city with our duffel bags and our, our very cheap bikes. And, um, yeah, speaking a different language to each other, you know, poor, poor Matthias, he, he had packed a lot of things. You know, when you, when you do your first trip, you pack a lot of things, you always pack too many things. And so those first couple of days, you know, I just remember looking back and he was just tossing things out of his bag and, and, and he had brought, you know, an entire liter of olive oil. And I believe it was a glass jar. I believe it was a glass jar. It could be a quirk of my memory, but I believe it was glass. And, and I actually found a journal that I had written of this time period in which during those first couple of days, I was looking back and I was watching him with this bottle of olive oil. And he was lubing his chain with it. Um, so he used it, you know, for anything really. And so it was interesting. And we kind of, uh, we rolled with it. Um, we had our, our issues, I think, at first. I, you know, we were biking in rainy season. And so, you know, that was tricky because I had kind of expected that we would just bike through the rain. And he had kind of expected that we would find shelter, which is very reasonable, you know? <laughs> it's a reasonable thing to find shelter in a monsoon. Um, but I kind of, I was a little bit harsh, probably, in my expectations. And so, you know, we kind of had to get through those periods. It was it was difficult, you know, to be, to be put into that situation all at once, I think. But we ended up having so, some wonderful times. And I, I remember especially... Um, there was this one moment we went into the town of Medellin and we were turning a corner on the bicycles. And so, you know, there's just these ragtag bicycles, you know, we're biking through very inclement weather, either very, very hot or, or monsoon weather <laughs> over the Andes. Um, so we're ragged. Uh, we turned a corner in this town and The streets of this town were just lined with people. So there were hundreds of people on either side of the street. And I remember just looking back and forth. I was like, what is going on? And I realized we had entered a bicycle race. And not only had we entered this race, but we were winning. And so, you know, I looked side to side. I was like, oh my gosh, this is is our moment. And so I just, I put my both hands up in the air and I sat back in my seat and I just started screaming like, yeah, and the whole crowd just erupted. And so we biked through Medellin, you know, with this whole crowd just screaming and, and shouting and cheering us on. And it was just one of the most magical entrances, um, that I never could have predicted. <laughs> um, we also had some difficult times. So, you know, it wasn't all just winning unexpected races. I wish it was. <laughs> I wish that was every bike trip was winning unexpected races over and over. Um, but it, unfortunately, it wasn't always that great. And, and so at one point, uh, Matthias, he ended up pulling out his back in a very bad way. Very, It was a very severe um, problem and very painful. And so we ended up taking him to a chiropractor. So he went into this chiropractor's office and they ended up rubbing his whole body with seashells and hooking him up to electrodes and and electrocuting his whole body while they rubbed him with seashells. It was a very strange thing. I'd never heard of that as a treatment. And then we got back on the bikes (laughs) and poor Matias, you know, he was still in so much pain and, and he was on a lot of muscle relaxers and painkillers at that point. And, um, so I have this memory of, of being out in front and, and climbing up out of this big, this, of this really big hill. We were going a long way uphill and, and I stopped on the side of the road. There was a woman, um, selling homemade baskets and I just stopped and I hung out with her. I was waiting for Matias to come up this hill and and I was just waiting and waiting and it was like 20 minutes and 30 minutes and 40 minutes and I was like, oh my goodness, I'm going to have to go back down. And suddenly I just, I saw this little dot at the bottom, you know, just slowly coming up this hill and he got closer and closer and I could see his face was just pitch white and he was just slowly pushing one pedal down in front of the other and just
4: cranking
3: it up this hill. And I was just like, "Wow, this person, uh, this person is totally gonna make it. Like, this is <laughs> this is an extremely resilient person. They are gonna be able to do whatever they want." and from there on out I feel like you know he he kind of bounced back and and we had a a really a really good trip from there it was it was you know Colombia is an incredible country people were so generous to us and so kind and and hospitable it it was really amazing you know we were we eventually got up to the coast and um, I ended up getting very sick Um, so I was biking with that and ended up the last section of that trip getting to the border of Venezuela was across a desert called La Guajira desert and uh, it's just a brutally hot desert there's nothing there I mean and so you're just going, you know, just kind of slowly pedaling forward through that heat and uh, in these wide open spaces. And I just, I remember being so depleted at that point um, from being sick for so long and just kind of focused on getting to this border where I was going to miraculously renew this visa. And so eventually, you know, made it there, made it to the border, got to the customs and, Tried to renew my visa (laughs) and failed and completely failed. (laughs) So, after all of that, (laughs) they definitely didn't renew my visa. (laughs) It was really uh, sad at the time, (laughs) but probably predictable. I mean, why would they (laughs) renew my visa? doesn't make any sense um so that didn't work and (laughs) so then i had to um call my partner scott and tell you know he was set to arrive in a couple days into the country and become a park ranger with me (laughs) and i had to tell him that you know we couldn't do that anymore and and would he like to go for a bike ride um (laughs) And so he flew in and uh, we bought him another suitably just very cheap bicycle, um, threw another duffel bag on it. And Scott and I ended up biking down to Ecuador together, which is a whole other story.
1: Thank you to Laura Killingbeck, who recorded this beautiful story for us, not once, but two times. Laura is a writer and world traveler, and you can follow her on Instagram, at Laura Killingbeck. Dynamo Jenny is a project of Adventure Cycling Association. It's hosted by me, Jessica Zephyrs. Produced by Becca Zook and Jessica Zephyrs, a.k.a. The Z-Team. And Becca Zook also edits the show. Special thanks to Alex Strickland. Maybe stay away from the berms, man. Music from this episode is from Blue Dot Sessions. Daniel Mergan made original art for this episode. You can see it and so much more on our website, adventurecycling.org. If you like what you're hearing, please recommend us to a friend or review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. And hey, thanks so much for listening.